Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. That's right. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here on the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. Um, I, too, am a critic. Mm. For the purposes of this particular podcast, you may call me Rockmeister McCool. And uh, you might notice that we sound uh, uh, maybe a, a skosh different. It's hard to say exactly, because here's what happened. Over the over the Christmas holiday, we took a few days off, as I think we were entitled to do. Mm-hmm. And then we just ran right back into it, and we started recording a bunch of podcasts. We, and ran, we... ran right back into it with a full glass of water. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We, uh, we were recording... Uh, we recorded almost all of the latest episode of the Iron List, like all but like the last two entries. And those and those then, are long episodes, by the way. Those are over two hour episodes. It's an over two hour episode that is now gone uh, because of what I prefer to call a chemical spill. <laughs> sure. Uh, but regardless, uh, we lost a hard drive uh, oh. due to just, just crappiness. It's covered by our warranty up to a point. Yeah. Like they, they, you have to spend like several hundred dollars, but after that, you know, they can't charge you for like a whole new laptop. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people have been very helpful with that, and that's very kind of you. Um, but uh, basically, we're waiting for the our our good laptop to come back. So in the meantime, we've been working with uh, an old crappy laptop I have, which doesn't have very good speakers, and the letter O doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> oh no! And, and no, it's O because mm, the letter O doesn't work. <laughs> huh. uh, but uh, so, but it's it. We're able to edit a few shows, and we're editing them together as best to our abilities. And we're recording mostly on Whitney's laptop, and it just seems like the settings are just a little different. It sounds a little different to me. Hopefully, it's not too distracting. But if it is, this is why, and we'll be back up to our usual level of quality in a couple of weeks. But we didn't want to wait yeah. multiple weeks to start getting shows back up in the air. So we're putting out some stuff whenever we can, whenever we feel like it's up to a reasonable standard. Mm. But um, yeah, w- w- it's going to sound a little weird. We lost some of our audio assets. Uh, you know, some of it was backed up. Some of it was not as effectively backed up as I thought it was. So, um, you know, we're, we're just doing the best we can at the moment. And uh, if that's not good enough, we are deeply sorry. <laughs> we really want it to be good enough right. because uh, we have very high standards for this show. And we, we care very deeply about making sure that we give you good shows. We want our shows to be of high quality. Yeah. Uh, so thank you everybody for your patience. Thank you everybody who's noticed the announcements on Twitter and Facebook and Patreon, uh, where we laid it out uh, in some detail. Um, and uh, just thank you everybody. Uh, what was really cool, I just want to say before we get going here, is uh, a lot of people said something to the effect of, "Oh, that's nice. You guys have a reason to take a break." <laughs> so quite a few people who listen to our shows who know that we're rather prolific as far as podcasters go. Uh, sometimes worry that we're not getting enough rest, and the answer to that question is we're not. No, uh, never I'm, I'm once, tired. never have been. Um, <laughs> it's not very healthy, and I'm trying to be a little zen about the catastrophic mm. tech meltdown by just saying like, okay, we have to slow down a smidge, no matter what. We can catch up on our sleep a little bit sometimes, so uh, we'll do the best we can, and we're gonna do our best to give you some good shows. But anyway. <clears throat> This is We've Got Mail. This is a show where you write in and we answer your emails. Uh, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a P.O. box as well for those who prefer the snail mail option. Whitney, what is that? Uh, you can write us in uh, Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yep. And uh, before we uh, jump into your letters, which we can't wait to do because we're a little behind, um, we do have to uh, read a very special letter uh, from a sponsor. Oh, we, we indeed we do. We, we have a sponsor. We have a sponsor. The same sponsor we've had a couple of times. We're going to have them for a little bit. Uh, but it is a new podcast called Blindsided, and it is a mental health podcast focusing on sports and sports figures. That's right. Uh, um, Whitney, do you have something you would like to read us uh, in total? Sure. Oh, absolutely. Uh, this is a, a podcast. It's hosted by uh, an NHL goalie, Corey Hirsch, and a psychiatrist named Dr. Diane uh, McIntosh. Uh, plan your work and work your plan. Uh, for many athletes, saying such as this could be considered scripture, permanent signposts along the long road to success in sports. Uh, for some, the very act of pursuing a career in sports can give a sense of control, a sense of safety, so long as you stick to the plan. That is, until life happens, the kind of life that happens when you're out making other plans, breakdowns, insecurity, panic attacks, PTSD, addictions, sudden life changes. Ones that require an athlete to toss aside their well-laid plans in order to answer the question... What's your next play? Blindsided is a podcast about sports, mental health, and life. There you go. Mm. Anyway, um, I, I, I hope it's a good show. Uh, check it out if that sounds like it's it, of interest it, to you. It, and uh, yeah, it, it is in keeping to our interests. Mental health. We, is important we're to big us, on mental so. health on this show. Um, we, we, as people have noted in our We've Got Mail podcasts, uh, we we care very deeply about mental health, and we care very deeply about uh, destigmatizing mental health. Mm. Uh, because, as I've said before, throughout a lot of my life, it was something people just didn't talk about yeah, in yeah. public. And as a result, I felt like I had to carry keep a lot of stuff in. And it's only once I started talking about it openly that I was able to actually do something about it. And uh, so that's helped me a lot. And um, you know, be hypocritical for me not to support it in general. So hmm. uh, I will support it in general because I do support it in general. And we can move on to our first email <laughs> without any more dilly dallying. We apologize right. for the delay. Moving on, Whitney. What's our first email? Here is uh, here's an email for B. Peterson. Oh, hi, B. Hi, B. Um, uh, good morning, friends. Uh, first, some housekeeping. Uh, the, the title of this letter is taxonomy. Yay! <laughs> uh, first, some housekeeping. Number one. About Endlessness, Days, Drive My Car, Emma, The Gaze, uh, Gunda, Identifying Features, The Inheritance, Labyrinth of Cinema, First and Last Men, Lost Course, Mothni, Mothni, Towards the Ocean, Towards the Shore, Petite Mamam, Quo Virus Aida, Shiva Baby, Summertime, Test Pattern, This Is Not a Burial, It's a Resurrection, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, The Year of the Everlasting Storm, and Zola are all smaller 2021 releases deserving of people's time. Fair enough. <laughs> if they have it. That's a very long list. Every single film I've seen on that list, I highly recommend, mm-hmm. which suggests that the films that I haven't seen on that list Two, are also worth recommending four, to. Four, five, I've seen about, about three quarters of those. I've, um, I've seen about half, I think. Yeah. Some around there. Yeah, it's a, But it was a good, uh, good uh, list of recommendations. Uh, number two. So uh, go back and slow that down. Take notes. <laughs> number two, I may be developing a podcast that is not film-related. Oh. Stay tuned. Uh, now that that's out of the way, I'm writing to you to talk about taxonomy again, which is fun. I ran a few Twitter <laughs> polls the other day and got back some interesting results. My questions revolved around awards categories, specifically the award for best visual effects. Mm. Uh, three questions were as follows. Number one, when a film features outstanding and extensive prosthetics that are likely digitally enhanced, i.e. any recent Guillermo del Toro joint, malignant Psycho Gorman, do you nominate it for best effects, best makeup and hair, best costumes? Mm. Uh Number two, when a film features outstanding extensive sets that are enhanced with digital and or practical effects, e.g. any recent Wes Anderson joint, either version of Dune, Labyrinth of Cinema, do you nominate it for best uh, visual effects or best production design? 
And three, when an animated film, regardless of medium, features outstanding and innovative animation techniques, Wolfwalkers, Spider-Man, The Wolf House, do you nominate it for Best Visual Effects or not? The poll results were as follows. Regarding prosthetics, 40% of the votes went to Best Visual Effects. That's for um, mm. makeup. Yeah. 60 to make- makeup and hair and zero to costume. Uh, regarding sets, about 25% of the vote went to effects and 75 went to uh, production design. Mm-hmm. And as in animation, about 45% of the votes were in favor of effects and 55% were against. Yeah. What do you all think? Do prosthetics count as visual effects? Do sets? Does animation? Hmm. In my personal opinion, I would argue yes on all counts, but then where's the line between visual effects and other categories? Here's the part where you chinwag for a bit, see you around, Peterson. <laughs> That's a great point. And what has happened in our, in our lifetimes, Whitney and I, but uh, perhaps not so for everybody else, uh, in our lifetimes, computers went from a thing that would occasionally contribute a neat visual effect to something that every movie, big and small, got filtered through. Yeah. And a lot of movies that are very, very small that you might not even think had any visual effects in them probably had a lot. There were probably uh, green screens outside the windows on the soundstage so that they can add backgrounds mm-hmm. later, that kind of thing. Um, a lot of movies are filled with visual effects and you'd never even know it. Uh, the result of that is that the visual effect of computer-generated imagery has started more and more bleeding into a lot of other artistic disciplines. Mm. In particular, the ones that we mentioned, uh, production design. A lot of production design has a lot of visual effects, at the very least, contributing to it. Yeah. Uh, costumes, maybe less often, but it's not uncommon. Mm. Uh, a lot of the costumes in Marvel Cinematic Universe movies are added in post. That yeah, kind of you, thing. You, can, you see photographs of the actors on set and they're wearing those wetsuits. Oftentimes uh, they are enhanced in post for one reason or another. Um, And in the case of characters who are wearing prosthetics and things, the CG can be used to remove the seams Mm. from... visible seams from various costumes. Uh, And in terms of animation, animation has always been a visual effect. Animation has always been... If you go back to 1937, uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, uh, I think, won a special Academy Award for its visuals, for making an animated feature film on such a scale. In fact, early on, I I got into a lot of arguments with people when um, Disney put out the CG animated Lion King, which Mm -hmm. was erroneously referred to as the live-action Lion King. So they were selling it. That's how There's one like shot that. in it's the animated. entire film that they just slipped in to see if you'd notice that is not animated. Everything else in that movie is 100% computer animated. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> some argued that because it looks like live action, ergo it is live action. And that is a... It's not live action. That is a huge live insult action. to all live the animators. Is, live action is pointing a camera at a thing. Yeah. <laughs> what happened was in the 1940s, as animation became a more prominent form of motion picture storytelling, it had always been around even since the silent era. Disney did not invent it, but it started to become a more prominent force at the box office. We started needing new terminology. We needed to be able to describe movies that were animated versus movies that were not animated. Mm-hmm. And what we decided was movies that were animated, things that were manipulated in post or in itself uh, in order to add character animation or whatever, those were animated. And live action was action that was captured live. Ergo, if it is captured live, it is not animation. Even that's kind of fudging it if you think about it, because uh, the, what is 24 frames per second but yeah, photographic yeah. animation? But I, I, whatever. We're I getting, we're getting in the weeds. A, I know there is... Uh, and, you know, as the the lines begin to blur, I think if you're going to go for like awards consideration, yeah, 
for the Academy Awards. I do believe uh, a lot of these bodies have, or at least have debated, what the actual definition of that is. Yes, and they have before. Some, but sometimes the but sometimes the technology laps that conversation. Yeah, it yeah, gets well um, ahead of it. I remember when Avatar yeah. was nominated for best. Um, for best art direction, and this is one of the first times I noticed. Like, oh, wait a minute, it almost was, it was best cinematography. No, it was cinematography and art direction. Oh, okay. And my point with both is, um, most of that's in a computer. Mm. Some of it is, but the stuff that isn't in a computer is actually the least interesting stuff visually in the movie. So the actual physical set. So one could argue that it only deserves best visual effects, mm. even though yes, people are still designing those sets, but they're not realizing them all practically the way that they used to when we started giving out awards for this discipline. One could at least argue that these are somewhat different jobs. Mm. Uh, well, the, there we also are because we notice everything is made with a computer. We assume it's the same team working on everything that comes yeah, out of that computer. That's not true. There are actually you know dozens of different groups of hundreds of people mm -hmm. that are each covering a different aspect of this thing. So, we're responsible for lighting. We're yeah. responsible for the color. We're responsible for the the texture. We're responsible. There's a so lot of people just doing because they're all made in computers doesn't mean they don't involve incredibly different disciplines. Yeah. And uh, so something that is a, a costume that wraps around a person that's going to be a different type of animation mm -hmm. than a set or yeah. a, or an atmosphere or an atmosphere, mm -hmm. a, a, a fake CGI uh, place. One thing we've talked about extensively is whether uh, CGI characters, characters like uh, Gollum or mm -hmm. Caesar from the Planet of the Apes movies or Rocket Raccoon, for example, uh, who are increasingly convincing and very well done, um, regardless of how convincing they are, should they be eligible for Oscars for acting? Mm. There, to the, my, to the best of my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong, there has never been a competitive Oscar nomination for an animated performance. Uh, no, there has okay. not been. There have been, been pushes. People have tried to get them nominated, mm. but it's never happened before. And there was, well, some, there was uh, some discussion that, you know, once, like, Andy Serkis was actually doing all the physical movements and they were just painting over him that maybe finally we would be able to yeah. nominate someone like Andy Serkis and that still has not happened. Well, the, uh, and th this is one that when the, the argument is being made, let's yeah. nom nominate Andy Serkis. He gives a great performance. And yeah. I say, well, he combined with the special effects yeah. are giving the great performance. Yeah, so I think we, I think I think we, we need, need a separate to, category. Yeah, right? We need the best animated a, performance. Animated or adapted performance. Yeah. And one of the critic bodies I belong to has that yeah. as a category. And I think that's a good idea. I think you get, and I don't know uh, who you give that award to, but I think you give it to the performer, whether they're in a motion capture suit or just doing voice, mm. and also the lead character animators. You should give yeah, it to more, yeah. but like after, if you, if you're, if you're, if there's so many people involved. At some point, mm. you do have to cut it off. Much like. You can only give an award to so many producers of a movie. You have to like—I think it limits like three or four, but, uh, uh, even though there are often many more. Yeah, but when you know, when when the time comes when mm. uh, there's just no physical element to a film at all, when it's yeah. all just information, everything's created mm. digitally instantly in a computer. Uh -huh. uh, well, not instantly, but you know, like, digitally, regardless. Do, do you do you want an army of fifty Abe Fagotas? The day's coming. <laughs> <laughs> and and also, we might be able to make a movie out of that. I just want the sure. army, personally. <laughs> <laughs> well, I meant in a movie, but uh, well, sure, real life. That but I think too. I think we can all agree that the, that's uh, the line, though. When it's all created digitally, that's an animated film. It's an animated film, but uh, 
you know, as as these, um, you know, look at something like Avengers Endgame. Mm-hmm. How much of that is actually live action? I don't know. Like, they got the actors, but, you know, in long shots, it's not the actors, and they're flying around and stuff. I remember a long time ago, because uh, they release every year mm-hmm. the list of films that are eligible for the technical awards, at least yeah. most of them. Uh, because they, they come up with the, basically every movie's eligible, and then they the guilds shrink it down a bit, so it's a bit more manageable. So there's like, I don't know, 20 or 30 films that are ultimately up for best visual effects. The rules for what qualified as an animated movie mm-hmm. uh, allowed it so that, I remember one year, I think like Star Wars Attack of the Clones was eligible because it was mostly animation. Uh-huh. Because they didn't use real sets anymore, mm-hmm. and I would have loved to have seen that nominated. What wouldn't wouldn't that have broken the mold? Um, it's my understanding that there are some weird rules that like make it harder for motion capture movies to be nominated. Um, I think that's bullshit. Personally, I don't really know how that works, but mm-hmm. you notice they almost never do. Um, but uh, regardless, what we're talking about here is uh, how do we categorize visual effects? Should all visual effects be relegated to the visual effects category? And I think what it boils down to is we're all trying to use our best judgment, but there may come a time when we need to destroy the entire system and work it back up from ground zero. <laughs> because there's just the industry doesn't work the way it used to. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are certain things which will remain more or less the same, uh, but... Um, yeah, we're we're at a point now where we have to acknowledge that, yeah, movies, two very similar movies could create their production design in two completely different ways, mm. in digitally or physically or in with some combination thereof. Yeah, yeah. and that's the same with costuming. Um, when it boils down to the specific one was um, prosthetics. Uh, I believe that if it's a physical prosthetic that's being made that belongs in makeup. Mm. I believe that if you're creating an animatronic covered in like prosthesis type materials, that's a visual effect. Sort, sort of like the um like the creatures from the movie Labyrinth. Yeah. Like the those there's actors in those suits, they're wearing something. Yeah. But that's a special effect. That's a, yeah. a rather that's like that's like there's rig. like it's not there's like a robot servo overneath Hoggle's face. Yeah, like you know, yeah. that's so I would argue that that's technically a visual effect, or I would argue that um uh, I'm trying to think of another good example here. But whatever, I would argue that like that kind of thing is arguably more of a visual effect. Um, personally, I think that it, it makes more sense for the production design category to be more heavily emphasizing physical production mm-hmm. uh, than I, I think. If we're adding like almost exclusively CG animated films to production design, I think that's a slightly different thing than realizing them in reality in some way. Mm-hmm. So that's where I lean on that. And with costuming, uh, again, unless you're doing it all in CG, I think if you're, as long as you're making the costume, that's you can you can touch it up a smidge, but it's still costume design. Yeah. That's okay. where I stand. Okay. Yeah. And about you? Um, we got to talk to Colleen Atwood. Yeah, we did. Uh, one, of, one of the more famous costume designers. One of the great costume and, designers, yeah. yeah. And uh, something I actually... Uh, like, I... I I asked her twice, and I was really trying to sort of peer into the future of costume design because she's done costume designs in CG. Yeah, uh, you know, she would always make it on on a little maquette, but mm. sometimes they they wouldn't actually have to make a costume. Yeah, uh, so. I asked, you know, is there ever a temptation to make a if if you know it's not real, you don't actually have to build anything. Mm. Do you want to have like 
a, a necklace that floats around the neck and doesn't touch the so, body. Something, or something that is that not can, yeah. something that you could never make in real life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do do like an actual fantasy outfit, and you know she was you know just mm, no, I'm just going to make costumes. You know she's mm. much more practical. Yeah, uh, because but, you got, you got to remember costume designers kind of... are also thinking about how actors interact with the costume. Yeah, yeah, and if you can if you can't conceive of that, are you helping the actors? Mm. One could one could wonder. Hmm. Anyway, um. Uh, let's go to another letter. Let's go to another letter. That's a great question. That's something we're going to be debating for a long time, I'm okay. sure. Uh, here's a letter from Max. Hello, Max. Hi, Max. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Whitney, there's a lot I admire about you as critics, but the thing I appreciate more than anything else is your tastes. Oh. oh. God, don't admire my taste. Not everybody but, agrees with that. <laughs> you aren't afraid to give your opinions on a film even if it goes against the mainstream view of thinking, while never feeling like you're talking down to anyone. I liked Dune, but I admire that the two of you had a critical but fascinating take on on it that wasn't shared by many. Hmm. It's something I've been working on and have been seeing take shape while putting together my end-of-the-year best-of list. Huh. I am known in my friend group as the movie person, nah. so I often feel a lot of pressure on these lists to put critical darlings on so my friends see the great films of the year. Hmm. This year I've found my list having some of these little darlings like West Side Story, Titan, and Belfast included, but I also see more polarizing films like Venom, Let There Be Carnage, and Malignant showing Yay! up. I'm happy my own tastes are evolving to the point I'm not ashamed to admit I consider Venom one of my favorite movies of the year. And uh, It made my list. Yeah. <laughs> right, we just we'll dropped that episode a, top, a couple days ago. Top, top 13. Um, yep. After all that rambling, my question is, have you two ever felt the need to go along with the mainstream critical mm. opinions of film? And if you did, uh, when did the two of you break out to having such unique opinions? Thank you for the endless entertainment. I have to start traveling for work again, and you two give me so much to listen to and think about on trips. Max. That is a great question, and... Um, I'll, I'll say this. Yeah. I've had the opposite problem. Mm. Um, I, uh... The, the urge to be contrarian is very, very strong. Not to be a contrarian, but to... Yeah, not to be contrary just for the sake of it. No, but when you see a, a, a popular consensus forming around an opinion... Uh-huh. Uh, in in my own twisted little brain, I want to start picking it apart a little bit. Well, you do, you, I'm, I'm you want to see, you want to put your, the mainstream. You want to put your guard up. You don't want yeah, to take uh, it for granted because other people like it. Even if that it's you something will. I agree with initially, it's yeah. like okay, a lot of people are agreeing with this. Let's get a like step yeah. back a little bit and yeah. see if we can get well, a, a more whole picture. I, I think a lot of it has to do with um, we are responsible for having our own sense of taste. Yeah. Um, and theoretically everyone is, I mean, you're allowed to go with the flow if you want. Uh, but, um, you know, our philosophy is like what you want. And, you know, if you can explain why all the better, but like what you want, like Mm -hmm. what you like, you don't have to worry about what other people are into. Um, but, um, because it's our responsibility to have our own sense of taste, because it's our responsibility to explain our taste, to, uh, uh, view a film through our own lens. Yes. Uh, we can't let other people dictate what that lens is. Mm. Uh, so I often, you know, I'll, often I'll get a sense of what the general wave of reaction is to something, like especially if it like debuts at a film festival months before I get to see it. Mm. Like most people, you know, like, oh, this played at Toronto and everyone loved it. I'm like, okay, great. I haven't seen it yet. I don't know. Yeah. So that is something where I actually have to start putting up some barricades. And I can't let the enthusiasm get to me because then I'm expecting a great movie. And what if it's merely a really good movie? Mm. And because I was expecting a great one, I ended up not liking it. But it's not the movie's fault. It's my responsibility for meeting each movie on its own terms and ignoring the the buzz, Mm. positive or negative. 
and well, it, and if I like it, I'll contribute to that buzz because it's my responsibility to be honest. And if I don't, it's my responsibility to be honest about that too, even if I'm the only one saying it. Um, if and any critic worth their salt mm-hmm. uh, won't give a damn about popular opinion. It's mm-hmm. not our job to yeah. look at and reflect upon yeah. popular opinion. It's our job to watch a film and tell you about it. it it's a human impulse uh, to want to like get along well, with other people, but that's not our job. It's it's entirely th- this is uh, very much uh, uh, magnified by a lot of the way social media conversations tend to go. Yeah. And this notion of uh, Rotten Tomatoes, that there is a certain kind of consensus out there yeah. that you can put a numerical value on. Yeah. And this is fresh, this is rotten. Uh, 60% is fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, by the way. That's arbitrary. Very arbitrary. It could have been 50. Why not? Yeah. Half of the critics liked it. Shouldn't that be fresh? That's no. not bad. Depending yeah. on how many critics there are. I mean, that's something they also yeah, don't but, always talk but, about. Sometimes it's like based on 13 reviews. Yeah, Sometimes yeah. it's based on 600. You know, it's and that's the, a different... It's a, you, you really can't balance those the same way. So th- this idea... That, and so, you know, it becomes this sort of... Um, and we talk about this all the time, about how there's this new sort of battleground about mm. movie opinions, how there are some that are just you know, objectively better than others, and they can be... Yeah, mm. there's all these facts and figures now. There's no objectivity in no, criticism. No, it's criticism. It's your opinion on a film. Yeah. It's how you feel about that movie. That's yeah. it. I feel like people, uh, and, people get confused about objectivity because... I, my definition of criticism is criticism is the art of making qualitative statements through quantitative examples. Mm-hmm. You can't just have an opinion. That's not criticism. You have to explain why. Yeah. And so when you... I have an opinion about a film. I think it is good or bad. You have to be able to say, for these reasons. And these reasons need to be something you could show people. Look at this scene. Look at how this dialogue reads. Does this not feel artificial to you? Or look at how this is edited. Does this not feel choppy and somewhat confusing? That kind of thing. Because those examples are quantitative, I can reproduce those and I can show them to people. Mm. It starts to feel objective because I can point to them and those are things that exist. But you can look at those exact same scenes and say, I like that. And Mm. that's just as valid if you can explain why. Mm. So even that doesn't really mean anything. It's just a matter of how you can guide people through your ideology. I personally, as a human being, I've had social anxiety my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, I struggle uh, to feel comfortable in large groups of people, uh, digitally or in person. Uh, and one of the reasons why I gravitated towards film criticism just as an art form is because it's one of the few places where you're encouraged to have a distinct voice and speak up if you disagree with the mainstream. Yeah, yeah. And where it's important that you do so. We need those voices. Even mm-hmm. if you are the only one, it's good to have that on record. Yeah, but uh, so like that's very freeing for me. I get to I get to dissent when I think it's appropriate and I think I have a good uh, reason to. So for me that's 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 yeah. wonderful for me. I love that part. That that said, um I think the reason why the pull toward sort of popular opinion is because mm. movies are also social. We're looking at them at like critics. Yeah. We're talking about an art and trying to sort of uh, pick it apart, as it were. Yeah. One way or another. Well, yeah, people f- have different ways of doing show, it. Show people you know, what we felt about it, how, mm. how it made us feel, why it made us feel mm. that way. Uh, 
but uh, that's not necessarily what everybody's doing when they go to see a film. They're going in a big group to have a good time. Yeah, uh, you see that at horror movies, at, like late at night. Yeah. You go out there to horror movies. It kind of doesn't matter how crappy it is. Yeah, if it has a, a few good jump scares and a few like fun horror moments and some yeah. gore and sex in it. Yeah, that's it's, just it's something, communal experience. Yeah, it's, it's, it's this exciting, amplified it's by this having more people. Exciting thing that you can experience in a big room with a lot of people and sort of feed off of the energy in the room. The movie is uh, almost secondary to that feeling. Yeah, this is why you know, drive-ins are so exciting because yeah. that there's that sort of picnic feeling to it yeah. uh it's the reason why william castle is such a brilliant filmmaker because yeah. he ties the film and the experience together yeah true. uh and, and so uh when it comes to like popular opinion you don't want to walk out of you know this in, you know, party kind of atmosphere you say you saw this late night horror movie and everybody screamed and had a good time you don't want to be the stick in the mud nah. it says well it wasn't a very good movie uh, mm. You just want to say I had a good time the, with you guys. <laughs> this is why I don't trust cinema scores. Mm. Cinema scores, if you're they, they often get trotted out. This movie got an A minus cinema score. That's great. Cinema scores are uh, judged by people who stand outside of movie theaters, or and they ask you as you're leaving the theater, "What did you think of the film?" Uh-huh. Uh, you just paid good money to see that film, so as long as it didn't completely screw you over, you're probably going to be pretty kind of it right then. Mm. Give it a week. You might decide for yourself, oh, that wasn't that great. But it's a communal experience. If it gave you what was advertised, you probably dig it. Yeah. If it doesn't give you what was advertised, you'll probably say you're mad and you didn't get your money's worth. That's what that's that's one of the dangers of the communal experience. I you know, one of the things that we've lost a lot of in the pandemic is that communal experience of cinema. Mm. And there is this brief period where and this might be going away a little bit, movies are starting to get delayed because of the Omicron surge. Uh, but for a few months People were going to movie theaters in maybe not the same old numbers, but they were going to the movies more often. And a lot of people were just falling all over themselves. And it's really kind of romantic and sweet, actually, over like, oh, I got to see a Spider-Man movie with hundreds of people. And we were all super excited about it. We shared in these big moments. And I get that. And that's very, very sweet. But as you just said, the movie only has so much to do with that. That's a social experience, and we're social animals, and we respond to group mentality and groupthink. That's mm. um, one of the reasons why so many TV shows have laugh tracks. If you hear other people laughing, you're more inclined to give it a chuckle. Yeah, you're, you're getting that sort of energy from those people. Yeah, So, and, and they're just trying to trick mm. you there. So for me, as a critic, I'm thinking to myself in this whole thing, I'm like, I get to skip the part where I worry, was I just going along with the crowd because it was full of people who were super fans? I'm watching more movies like in at home in the privacy of it where it's just me and the film. Mm. And I can actually engage with the film as text more directly and not have to filter through yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the communal experience. Not that that's a bad thing, but it's not necessarily my responsibility to judge whether or not the audience liked it. It's my responsibility to engage with the actual art. Mm. So for me, I don't miss it as much as I thought I would. <laughs> I miss it somewhat because you know I'm a communal animal just like anyone else. But it's not the same. Yeah. It's I'm honestly like I, I miss, not not as like I, I'm not going through withdrawals the way some people are. I, I miss being in the room. Yeah, I like, but I uh, because the presentation's of presentations nicer usually. The, the yeah. nature of my schedule, I've typically seen movies during the day with mostly empty theaters, yeah. and you know I was kind of by myself most of the time anyway. Uh, to the point where uh, going to see a film with a big crowd was kind of unusual for me. Yeah, um, I actually saw Spider Man with a big crowd, and yeah, people were making a lot of noise and cheering, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know as a critic, it's like, oh, I missed some dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Like that. That's it's like I'm, okay. I'm trying to pay attention, you guys. Come on. 
Some of so, us are uh, working. Th- this is why uh, some <laughs> critics, you know, get uh, a reputation for being sticks in the mud mm-hmm. because they're not giving themselves over to the sort of community of, of and uh, mm-hmm. in the, the social media era, that's become a lot more abstract, hasn't it? Even if you're not in the theater watching it with other people, yeah. you're feeding into sort of your, your online community, the people you know, you, you follow on the, the Twitters. Yeah. And, as such, you know, people sort of leave the theater and they get on their social media and they're just like, what a fun experience I had in a theater. Yeah. That's a great film experience. Mm-hmm. And a critic will say, well, there's these problems with the movie. And they'll say, you don't get it. Mm-hmm. You, you you're yucking my Well, you're yucking my you're yum. You're yucking my yum. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so uh, no, but popular that's a, opinion doesn't matter mm-hmm. to us, but at the same time, I understand why some people mm-hmm. think it ought to. Well, there's also the other issue where you know our peers, so uh-huh. to speak, you know, um, fellow critics from uh, disciplines and publications far and wide. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they, there just seems to be a wave of support or a wave of rejection for one thing or mm-hmm. another, and I try not to ignore that. Sometimes if I really don't like something, but I find everyone else really digs it, mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily going to run out and see it again, but I do try to listen because what if I did miss something? Yeah. What if yeah. I? What if there's something to really like about this and I missed it? And then sometimes I'll really like something, but someone whose opinion I really trust writes something and it's about like how like, oh, actually, like there's some really bad stuff in here and mm-hmm. there's some attitudes in here that really hurt my feelings as this kind of person and... I need to take that seriously, and so I'll read that, and sometimes that will make me want to change my position as well, because I'm realizing that my lens mm-hmm. uh, was smudged. <laughs> yeah. We're supposed yeah. to see everything through our lens, but our lens isn't necessarily the best lens through which to look at every single mm-hmm. thing, and sometimes looking at it through someone else's perspective, which is what criticism is all about, viewing art through different people's perspectives, which is why we need so many critics, uh, is very illuminating. So I try not to ignore my fellow critics... But I also try not to let them tell me what to think. Yeah, I also I, I value their opinion and I'll read their opinion and sometimes they influence what I think. But it's not about going with the flow. It's yeah, about and, understanding different perspectives and growing as a person and as a fan mm-hmm. of the art form. I'm, and I'm not sure when when it happened at mm. some point in, in my professional career. But uh, you become kind of resolve after a while. Mm. You see a movie and you you feel like you, you get it. Yeah. You, you probably opi- don't need to see that again. You have yeah. an opinion of it. You understand it. You mm. know how to articulate exactly how you felt about mm. it. And you might not like it. Even if it has a lot of critics really mm. sort of pouring praise on it. I, I would step forward and say, I don't like that film and here is why. And, yeah. I, and I hear what you're saying, but I yeah. don't get... I, Sometimes, I see what you're talking about, yeah. but it's not, I'm not impressed by yeah. that. So, yeah, exactly. Sometimes what you're saying is very, very clear. It's not that I'm... I got this a lot when Batman v Superman came out. Mm. And everyone's like, no, you don't get it. And I'm like, no, I see every single thing you like about this. I just disagree that that's good filmmaking. <laughs> yeah. And I have all of my reasons for doing so, and I articulated them over and over and over again. And after a while, I realized nobody's listening to me, so I can probably stop listening to them because they're making the same arguments over and over again, and I get it. Mm. Um, you can look at the exact... It's like it, Movies are often like inkblot tests. You can look at the exact same thing and come away with something different. All yeah. that matters is, is there some logical reason to do so? Is there something in the text that supports your reading. And as long as there is, yeah, take away whatever you want. Um, but, um, yeah, I agree. Oftentimes, I've, I've done this long enough, and I watch movies with enough focus and critical eye, with enough confidence in my own knowledge of how filmmaking works and the art of film works, mm-hmm. that usually after one screening, I'm pretty confident that my take on the film is my take on the film. Yeah. But every once in a while, maybe, maybe there's an external factor. Maybe I know for a fact 
that that was a bad day. Mm-hmm. I was a, I was a, gr- a I was a grumpy Gus that day. Yeah, I, I remember uh, I had to go back, and when my father died, going on ten mm-hmm. years ago now, um, you know, I I didn't get I took some time off of work, but eventually I had to get back to work. The bills yeah. needed to get paid, and um, there was a few months there when I was not at my most focused. I was grieving. I was mourning. Yeah. And a lot of the films that I saw, I was looking at through that lens. And sometimes that was a perfectly good lens to look at the film. And sometimes it wasn't necessarily fair to it. And I tried to make a point of going back to, especially any films that I didn't like, and rewatching them if I could, mm-hmm. uh, and making sure that I wasn't too harsh on it. And I would just like to say, for the record, I was not too harsh on you, Star Trek Into Darkness. <laughs> You were really bad. Yeah, we, I've watched that one several times over. Yeah, I there's thought maybe a, I was being mean to it. Nope. There's a, there's also the phenomenon of uh, because we live in sort of the era where people go to see films many many times. Yeah, uh, not just in a theater, but then they get it on a home video and watch it many many times. Besides, yeah. and you know, now people feel like they haven't seen it until they've seen it at least ten times. That's a it's lot. It's like, a lot of times. Yeah, and there's this thing when. Uh, and I, I remember this from my Star Trek days. Star Trek Generations gave me a big <laughs> kind of uh, eye opening, where I tried to watch it until it grew on me. Yeah, like okay, I'm gonna see. I, maybe I didn't get it. I'm gonna try again. And there were su- superficial things I like and still like about Star Trek Generations, but I do recognize that it's quite a bad movie. Yeah, uh, you're just from a, a script per, a script it angle. Work particularly well, but they're no, definitely the characters are still who you want to see, and they're in characters. And yeah, that's good. and, and yeah. you know it's still the original Enterprise, yeah. and there's the things in the movie that you would see on the TV show. Yeah, so that that kind there, of it's, stuff. It's not a I complete wash, but yeah. it's also not a particularly good film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, this, this idea that you watch a film over and over again until you kind of get on on its mm-hmm. wavelength, or until you yeah. That's not your responsibility. You don't have to do that until you know until it kind of matches what popular. You don't have is. to accept anything. Man. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we need to move on because we've, we've talked about this to death. But that's a great question. As you can see, there's a lot of tools of thought about it, mm. um, and hopefully that was illuminating and not just really rambly. Uh, <laughs> let's move on. Uh, here's a letter from Adelaide. Hello, Adelaide. Hi, Adelaide. Uh, dear Bibbs and Whitney, I hope you both had a good December and the wonderful seasonal 70 degree weather. Oh gosh, it's in the 40s around here. It's actually it's, unseasonably it's, cold uh, in LA. Yeah. We had we had like rain for like a week and a half straight practically. It we was, had a wet Christmas. It was great actually. Yeah. I loved it. There was actual weather that was actually kind of nice and cozy, and mm-hmm. we just all sat around in our in our in our robes I've, and watched old movies, and it was I've, great. I've had a, uh, an opportunity to wear my long johns, mm. which I, I can wear. Like maybe one day a year. Uh, my 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 partner M. Lopez da Silva got me a uh, something I always wanted, which is a smoking jacket. You know, like you see, like uh, in the nineteen sixties. You, you don't smoke, but no, I don't smoke. But I like. But it's a lounging jacket, is what yeah. it is. It's yeah. it's a it's basically a fancy robe. Uh, and uh, I'd never had one before, and they had it like tailored to me, like it was made for me. So it's actually like fits just right. Uh, and I got to, and I was worried initially. I was like, oh no, it's often so warm here. I'd be such a bummer if I didn't get to wear it very often because it's quite cozy. Mm. But then just the weather stayed cold and I've been able to wear it almost every day and it's been really nice. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's actually been kind of an interesting, unusual L.A. December. Yeah. But, anyway, but back um, to your letter, sorry. Uh, <laughs> my question for you this week is if there are any films you, uh, if there's any films you feel very passionate about wanting to see made, whether or not uh, mm. that's adaptations you think have potential on the big screen or films that were never made that fill apart mid-production, i.e. Mm. Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon film, 
Uh, I know I've written in before uh, wanting to see a parodic look at the creation of Love Never Dies. <laughs> That's the uh, sequel to Phantom of the Opera. Right. Uh, but I also think Barry Gordy's life has incredible potential for a biopic. The creation mm. of Motown is a fascinating section That's of music true. history, and I would yeah. love to see it told. Yeah. Thank you for reading this, and I can't wait to hear what you think. Sincerely, Adelaide. You know, um, um, there's this, there's, and I think it's false, but there's like this idea that like every critic is just a filmmaker who didn't get a chance to make films. Uh-huh. Um, and, um, you know, I've toyed with different things to do in the entertainment industry throughout my career. Uh, but I actually found that like criticism is what I enjoy doing most. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that said, every once in a while I do get an idea for a film. Every once in a while I'm reading something and I think to myself, this would make a great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to think of like maybe what some of the better examples of that would be. I, I've often thought to myself, I would love to see, although it would probably be a better TV series, an adaptation of the comic book Sandman Mystery Theater, hmm. uh, which takes place mostly in the 1930s. Uh, and it was an updated version of an early pulp uh, DC superhero who uh, solved murders and uh, was a vigilante who walked around in a gas mask. And rather than shoot people, he would uh, shoot sleeping gas. Hmm. So the gas mask was his mask. It also made it look really intimidating, and he would shoot sleeping gas instead of violence. Um this uh, new version of the character from Sandman Mystery Theater, which uh, was pretty long, lasted like 70, 80 issues in the 90s, um, took the idea of before we really knew what to call and codify serial killers, hmm. they would have been like supervillains. Yeah. You know, they have weird MOs and they have uh, bizarre obsessions and oftentimes they're very intelligent and uh, are able to elude the police in ways that are unexpected because police were still, if you ever saw that David Fincher series, Mindhunters, still wrapped around the idea that crime must have a very logical purpose. It took forever to break that and realize that some people aren't operating on that wavelength. Um, So I always thought that would be a really, really cool series that had a lot to say about... um, uh, the social mores of the time, uh, yeah. and every different like villain or character had something to say about uh, what the world they lived in was, and also the protagonists, uh, the the Sandman, and also um, the debutante Diane, who uh, wound up falling in love with them and becoming his partner. Uh, they have a great and enormously positive sexual relationship uh-huh. that you just never see. Like you never really see Clark Kent and Lois Lane like enjoying sex. Yeah. You know, it's just it's something beyond a relationship. A lot of people do it. Not everyone is in a sexual relationship. I don't mean to say that that's the only way to do it, but a lot of people are. And it's weirdly sexless. A lot of the relationships that we see in cinema, it seems like there'd be a bit more sex than we would get now. I like that they that they that they have a healthy sex life. Isn't that nice? <laughs> be a fun thing to dramatize and make normal again. So um anyway, uh or maybe not normal. Normal's not the right word. Normal's judgy, but you know what I mean. It'd be a nice thing to put back in cinema again. Con- conventionalize perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Um destigmatize. Yeah. I think is what I'm going for. Mm. Anyway. I um I've I I grew up reading uh, the science fiction novels of an author named William Slater. Mm. I, I think I've brought up William Slater on the podcast have, uh, yeah. before. William Slater wrote books called uh, with titles like Interstellar Pig and The Green Futures of Tycho, mm. uh, and uh, his his stories dealt with some sort of uh, typically started to deal with some sort of scientific principle. Uh, he has one called Strange Attractors, which is about somebody who goes back in time and creates alternate timelines. That's mm. also the story of uh, The Green Futures of Tycho. Uh, Interstellar Pig is, uh, it has sort of an Ender's Game feeling where, um, 
they're uh, they they the characters are playing a board game, and that's we got get to see it like visualized in, in the sort of science fiction universe. Yeah. Uh, one is about uh, it's called the duplicate about a boy who finds a magical device that creates a double of himself, and mm-hmm. how sort of the practical considerations of that. Yeah. And how they actually like start to hate each other after a while. Uh, they're pretty dark. They're a little bit uh, cynical, and they're very, very good. Mm. Uh, one of his best books is probably House of Stairs, which is about teenagers trapped in a house of stairs. It's like Cube. It's like yeah. this maze, and they can't find their way out. And they don't know what, how they got there. And there's this glowing machine, and they figure out, like, it responds to, like, certain movements of theirs. And if they do it just right, it feeds them. Mm, so after okay. a while, they, they have to start, like dancing around this machine like the, the the movements get so elaborate and eventually they have to start beating each other up ah. for food like to, to appease the machine nice um uh i'm really surprised that nobody has ever tried to make a feature film of a william slater book yeah like a, a high, maybe high they have and it just never fiction. sometimes yeah, these things just take forever to go into yeah, production the things um, get optioned and can sit on like, you know an executive's shelf for years before anybody you know, before it like just lapses yeah. back into somebody else's property. Uh, I've, I've mentioned before, I'm, I'm, I haven't read all of them, but I'm a pretty big fan of the James Bond novels, uh-huh. uh, which are typically not nearly as broad as a lot of the movies are. Ah, then who needs them? Well, but they're still <laughs> really, really fun, though. They're just not ridiculous. And I think the case, the best case example of this, or at least the most obvious, is Moonraker. Uh-huh. Moonraker is a Roger Moore film. It was made after the surprise success of Star Wars. And although the film is kind of all over the place and has actually some good things to recommend it, the things that people remember the most are the silly sci-fi stuff. Yeah. Going into space and the laser guns. The book, Moonraker, is... Actually, kind of ahead of its time, and it's about. And I'm, I'm, I think I'm oversimplifying this, but here's what here's what you would do for today. Uh, it is about uh, corrupt corporate CEOs working to privatize the space race. That's it. That's that's that's. I mean, then Bond gets involved in that, and they're trying to like do bad things with it. Um, that's topical again. <laughs> that's kind of like you you did not need to make that ridiculous. That's actually a thing. That you could do. And I think you could actually make a pretty good Moonraker movie today and just go back to the novel. I think that's true for a lot of the James Bond books. You could use the title and the majority of the later James Bond movies, like after like the first three or four, Mm. they started playing really fast and loose with the plots of those books. (laughs) And you could just go back to the original material and you could actually get a different Bond film. Like with a few, only a few of the bullet points are the same, and you could totally like remake them without remaking them. Yeah, you know, and it wouldn't you wouldn't be going back to the well; you'd just be sort of tidying up the well. No, so no. that's something I would like. Um, trying to think, uh, obviously there's, Cap Wolf. There's a great Captain America story where he got turned into a werewolf. I want to do that. Sure. I I don't understand why we haven't yet. Man, it's kind man. of the only Captain America story left. Actually, the one story I've mentioned this before in Captain America: The First Avenger, we see in this big montage that Captain America, in addition to doing USO shows, also starred in like propaganda movies. Mm. Make those movies. Make like just the one straight up propaganda just, movies. Just make it. Just make it like you would in the 1940s. Like just do it. Like bring Chris Evans back. Oh. It's not a new story of the character. It's just here's the fictional Captain America movie they made in 1941. There you go. 
I would love to see that. That sounds like a really, really fun idea. That's a, that's a hoot. Let's something do that. Like Captain America and, and yeah. the Nazi menace. Yeah, yeah. Just something like that. Something, yeah, something like really just kind of on the nose or whatever like that. It could be like a Disney exclusive. You don't have to spend a million dollars on it. A lot of it would be relatively cheap because it would have been. But yeah, I'd love to see that. I think that would be a hoot. <laughs> um, we could go on. See, yeah, um, there's, there's so many. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm still upset that Ronnie Rocket never got made. Um, yeah, it's a David Lynch movie David, that David they were Lynch trying to make film, for a long time. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, you could fill a canyon with the uh, Clive Barker adaptations that never made it to film. Oh, yeah, Magica. Uh, or, yeah. Uh, the the Aberat Quartet was mm. sort of the big one. Um, yeah. Right before Disney was able to secure the license to Marvel Comics, mm-hmm. they were working on this gigantic, ambitious fantasy project to rival Lord of the Rings. It was based on a Clive Barker uh, young adult property. Yeah. They were just trying to knock off Harry Potter. They were yeah. They were trying everything. And uh, if, if you read the books, they, you know, they have this sort of expansive mythology. This uh, teenage girl finds herself in a mystical kingdom of an archipelago of islands. And on each one, it's constantly a different hour of the day. So that on one island, it's always three in right. the afternoon. On another island, it's always midnight. You don't go to Gar- Gorgosium. That's always the midnight <laughs> island. Um, uh, fine enough idea. Fantasy creatures. P- plenty of you know, fantastical paintings. And it's Clive Barker, so it's all really weird. Yeah. Um, and... Then the company changed hands. The project sort of fell out of favor with the new management. Clive Barker was just unceremoniously pushed out of his own project. Then they just dropped it. Yeah. It's like, but man, I was writing these books. So he stopped writing the books. Oh, like, that's was, so frustrating. He, he was going to like, okay, I'm going to write four. No, actually, I need to write five because this is a big story. And, the, and he stopped after three. <laughs> oh, that's so annoying. I can see getting discouraged, but that sucks. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, well, um, we've all we've all got our faves, don't we? We all yeah. have ideas that we that we we think about in the middle of the night, going that would be fun. Wouldn't that be keen? Yeah. Um, another letter. Yeah, we got one, time for one or two more. Uh, here's yeah, here's a letter from Daniel. Um, all right. Hello there, dear gentlemen of the critically acclaimed podcast network. Hello. First of all, happy New Year. Happy New, happy New Year. Uh, let me start with a quick question. What are some of your resolutions for 2022? Uh, it could hmm. be personal or professional, whatever you're comfortable sharing with us. Uh, that's uh, a good question. Yeah. I also wanted to tell you that I am studying at the moment to become a film editor. Oh, wow. Uh, and amazing. I'm a little bit worried about the discussion of editing nowadays. That's because there's almost none of it. <laughs> editing is not a feature that you can dissect easily in a review as cinematography or yep. sound design. And the discussion usually centers around really bad examples of cutting, like uh, modern... Uh, a lot of modern action scenes or yeah. all of Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, God, I right. hated that movie with all my heart and I can't understand how it won an Oscar. Yeah. So I understand that it's not an easy task to perform. Also, I believe uh, that the lack of a figure to look forward to, to other than Thelma Schoonmaker, yes, she is a goddess, but she mm. can't be the only editor that people can identify, <laughs> is a barrier that prevents general audiences from following the medium as it happens with other roles in film production. Mm. So who are some good editors that you can recognize from the last couple of years what recent films can you recommend that are really well edited Mm. and what do you think about the state of editing in today's film environment are there trends you can identify or any special features of the last decade thank you both for your all your amazing shows sincerely daniel from bogota colombia uh daniel Uh, those are great questions let's let's start with the resolutions because that's just kind of fun and we can make that kind of short okay Uh, because editing is a big topic actually and you're right it doesn't get talked about enough uh but resolutions I, i try not to be you know, I've learned my lesson, you know, like this year I'm going to learn how to play the harmonium or something yeah. like that. And I just, I never do. And it's just, uh, it's too big an ask. And what I try to do is I try to just pick something to work on. And uh, I'm trying to work on 
um, some of my anxieties. I'm trying to work on my anxieties about uh, uh, socializing. Obviously, that's part of it. I'm trying to work on my anxieties about my career. Okay. Um, right now, I'm at a point now where because the industry is very strange and uh, you know very much in flux, I don't know what my future is. Like, what am I doing? And I, I know what I'm doing now. Mm. Do I have a plan for what I want to do 10 years from now? Can I even foresee what the industry will be like 10 years from now? So one of my goals this year is to try to just get an image in my head of where I want to go, what I want to be, what my next path is. And, um, yeah, and figure that shit out because it's not easy. Mm. I kind of figured, like, oh, I'm a film critic. I got that settled now. And now I'm like... Yeah, now what? (laughs) You know, the human mind gets, you know, a little stagnant and, you know, you always want to do better. You always want to be able to provide more for your family, that kind of thing. So, and it's a, it's a rough industry right now. So Mm -hmm. at the moment, my New Year's resolution is to try to get over some of my anxieties about stuff like financing and career and figure out what I'm going to do next. Yeah. What's the next step? And hopefully it's similar to what I'm doing now, but will lead to Mm -hmm. even better things. But maybe it's totally different. I have to be open to that. Mm Um, news. I, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't state it out loud. This is this is my goal. But you mm. know, I have these sort of reminders in my brain now. It's mm. like there are some things that I want to uh, sort of do differently uh, you know, as as I move forward. What what can I do to grow? And uh, my unspoken uh, now I'm going to speak it out loud uh, resolution <laughs> is just to read more. Um, I, yeah. I've, I've let uh, you know, one of my great passions, reading, sort of fall by the wayside just because I'm so busy all the you, time. You were such an avid reader when I first met, met you. Like, you yeah, because I, had a, I yeah. had a lot more time. Yeah, you didn't have a kid. You know? like, it's, that, that takes up time. You, know? uh, yeah, you, you I, can't just the, sit there, relax, and pour through 12 chapters of a book in a night. Yeah, the, uh, I, I, the job I was working uh, back when you first met me, I, I had a lot of downtime. Yeah. At, so I'd just bring a book, and over the course of just a week, I could figure, you know, finish a gigantic tome. Uh, yeah, I was reading... Uh, I, could, I, I think I got through Gargantua and, Pant- Gargantua and Pantagruel, the uh, Rabelais book, mm-hmm. in like two weeks. Like I, that's that's pretty quick for a book that size. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'd like to be able to read more. In the past, uh, things like uh, the the usual cliched stuff. Like I wanted to, I wanted to get in better shape. Just mm-hmm. I, I I didn't. Yeah. Like many people, I, there were things I didn't like about my own body, so I wanted to change some of those things. So I started to work out and exercise, and I actually have changed the way my body looks in ways that I approve of. I have a butt now. <laughs> I didn't used to. <laughs> uh, I've learned. Of, I've my resolutions of last recent years has been to be more comfortable with who I am and not worry about changing it, uh, which yeah, is also uh, valid. I feel. Yeah, but like, absolutely. If, if you want to change, I'm you, not telling you want to change yourself, yeah. change yourself. But that's like, it's, saying, it's, it's a cliche. That's sort yeah. of what what these like industries are trying to sell you. Oh, you you need to feel yeah. you need to feel insecure about yourself. So buy our products. Buying is the thing that's going to solve it. Yeah. Uh, no, I just you know want wanted that for myself, so I didn't. That's that's it. Um, one year, I, re- I resolved to uh, be a little bit more openly queer. Um, there you go. Just I, I didn't talk about my queerness too much and uh, talk about my sexuality too much, and that wasn't helping anybody, was it? Uh, that wasn't. Mm. And I figured if I could I- express uh, express myself a little bit more openly and just say out loud, "I am a bisexual man," yeah. maybe other people would hear that and say, "Oh, okay." I, and I it's casual I, and cool. I spent a lot. I mean, I've known bisexual mm. men and women mm. my whole life, but I. Through a lot of my life, I didn't hear people in the, in, I don't know, I guess in the space, people who are hosting things, talking about things mm. on shows, it's celebrities, if you will, pundits, openly talk about their queerness, except maybe in the most broad terms. Mm. 
and something like bisexuality mm. was often glossed over or not mentioned at all. Yeah. And there weren't a lot of people who were openly bisexual yeah. when I was growing up. LGBT. So <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah. it was always the, the lowercase letter. Um, uh, it stands for badass, by the way. <laughs> well, I mean, it doesn't really, but it kind of does. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, that that was, uh, and you know, having having more open conversations about you know mm. how comfortable you are with your sexuality was, mm. you know, was important to me. It was important to me to start start expressing that. So yeah. I, I started doing that. But uh, right. yeah, th- this year, it's just I need more I need more literature in my life again. That's I need great, more man. theater in my life again. It's I love films, but I love other things as well, and I want to be able yeah. to indulge in those things as well. Um, uh, to editing, yes, which is really uh, one of the biggest and most important things. In cinema. There are very few movies that don't require editing. Uh, editing, and I've, I've heard it put this way before, um, it's something you only notice if it's done badly. If it's done really well, you tend not to notice it. But that's not strictly uh, true. Sometimes no, people are very avant-garde with their editing, and it's kind of exciting to see the editing kind of call attention to itself while telling the story. Uh-huh. But you're right. Oftentimes when we're reviewing a movie, we don't bring up the editing unless there's something to say. And it's usually the the standard practice for editors to try to disappear, mm. try to make the cuts sort of seamless, uh, try to make the pacing very natural so you're not thinking to yourself, this is moving too quickly for me or this is moving too slowly for me. Uh, and so it's almost like the greatest badge of honor if you don't mention the editing. Mm. Uh, and uh, people, when... But the thing is, if you notice the editing mm. uh, and you start becoming really aware of the cuts, yeah, then uh, well, they start feeling like cuts, don't they? Yeah, um, and that's something that a lot of people began noticing when a lot of action directors started doing it far too much. Yeah, uh, if if you uh, started disguising the fact that they didn't have good fight choreography by yeah, just so kind of cutting randomly, the cut, cut around it, and uh, you know, yeah. spatial continuity just doesn't exist in a Michael Bay film, for yeah. instance. A lot of people noted. I, I don't know who edits Michael Bay's movies, mm. but. Uh, uh, clearly, there, yeah, there's yeah. like four edits in a second. There's yeah. a really wonderful clip uh, you can find online from the movie Taken 3. Oh, God! <laughs> Where it's just Liam Neeson jumping over a, a fence. fence. But there, there's literally like 17 edits in like three seconds of footage. Yeah, he's just jumping over a fence. Cut to Liam Neeson running to the fence, jumping up on the fence. Close cup, up of the foot, close cup, up of the hand, close yeah. up of the leg going over. Yeah, yes. but like you don't, you don't need it a lot, basically. I realize Liam Neeson isn't doing that stunt because he's like in his 60s or whatever. Mm. And it's not worth it, for, especially for such a little stunt. But you do not need that many cuts to hide that. You really, really don't. It's absurd. You, you can actually have just like one long shot, maybe. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes editors are trapped for whatever reason because of the amount of coverage that they have to work with. Coverage, by the way, is the term that refers to the uh, whatever amount of shots that you have to assemble a scene. If it's a very small scene, you might only have three or four shots or less. Uh-huh. You know, here's here's a quick wide shot to establish where we are, a two shot of the actors talking to each other, medium close on one actor, medium close on another actor, so we have something to cut to, and then maybe some abstract business in case we need to cut something out and it's awkward. There's a great... Um, Robert Rodriguez has talked about this when he made his first feature film, El Mariachi. Mm. Movie was made for about seven thousand dollars. He <laughs> paid for it. Pocket change. He paid for it by selling his body for medical experiments. 
He uh, he had to cut which corners, is, which is why he's thirty feet tall these days. <laughs> I always wondered about that. Um, but uh, he had to cut corners in a lot of ways. One of which, and it's a spectacularly dangerous thing to do, and we we would not support this ever. But um, he he did it, and he was able to get away with it without any serious injuries. Uh, he couldn't afford fake guns, so he used real ones. Jesus Christ, that was dangerous! Don't ever do that. We, um, when something goes wrong on set, uh-huh. so that is emblematic of something almost going wrong at least ten thousand times before. That. Probably the case, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, one of the things he talked about in that movie was he had such limited amount of coverage because this is back when you were shooting on film. Film was very expensive, not just to buy it, but to mm-hmm. develop it. So he could only do one or maybe two takes of most things. And there would be situations where he would have to use, like, if they fucked up a moment or a scene or a line, he had to incorporate that into the plot now. <laughs> like, he <laughs> yeah. was just sort of trapped with it. But one thing he talked about was because his, his like, his, his coverage was so limited and uh, because he was just learning about all this, and oftentimes his audio would go out of sync because he was using cheap equipment, um, he, had a, he had a trick. Always cut to the dog. There's a dog in the El Mariachi, the mari- the guy with a gun, uh, the oh, that's funny. guitar case full of guns. He has a dog with him. Make sure you've always got a shot of the dog you can cut to, and then you can use that to just sort of resync up the sound a little bit. Or it just it always makes sense to cut to the dog because the dog's in the scene too. <laughs> Boom, done. There's a little editing trick. You can always get away with cutting yeah, to the um, dog. Uh, I- I, I notice editing when it's uh, handled skillfully for comedic reasons. Oh, yeah. Oftentimes, like, yeah, cutting yeah. to the one weird joke or yeah. the timing has got to be just right. Wait for it. Wait mm. for it. Wait for it. Uh, a little I'm, too long. Now it's funny. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. a big fan of uh, a, a really exciting smash cut. Uh, one yeah. of my favorite smash uh, smash cuts was in, I think it was in the movie mm. uh, Palmetto, if you remember that film at all. Vaguely. Um there was that's the one with Woody Harrelson. Yeah, Woody right? Harrelson's um, in Palmetto. Yeah, it's the I think it's the Volker Schlorndorf. Yeah, it was uh, Volker Schlorndorf. Yeah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a like, they kill. How like, do I know that? <laughs> Every once in a while, I'm like, how the fuck do I know that that's Volker Schlorndorf? But okay, yeah. <laughs> Even I'm weirded out by that little piece of trivia. But it is it's Volker Schlorndorf. Yeah, uh, yeah. Palmetto yeah. Is, it came out in 1998. Uh, in it's sort of this uh, neo noir kind of movie. And yeah. Over the course of the movie, uh, Woody Harrelson kills a guy. And they don't know what to do with the body, mm-hmm. and uh, they they call in sort of like in a very. Uh, this was in a lot of movies at the time. Uh, they call in like the cleanup guy, the person to yeah. sort of clean up the crime scene. Yeah, gets rid of the and body. He's, yeah, knows it's like okay, do, well, yeah. just lift the body into this vat. He has this chemical that just melts people. Like it'll melt yeah. the flesh off the bones, and if we leave it in there, the bones will melt too. Yeah, and we we see like a long shot of. Him pouring a chemical into the vat. We don't see the body at all. Yeah. And he gets up like a mop handle and starts stirring. <laughs> it's, like, it's already like... Mel- it's like a body. witch's brew. Yeah, yeah. it's like the, the person's already turned into goop. <laughs> and then there's a smash cut to a close-up of somebody eating spaghetti. Yeah. <laughs> that, and that's, that's like, oh cut. God, it's a great cut because it's evocative of mm. what that scene is. You see the yeah. stirring and then you see this close-up well, of somebody stirring a fork through spaghetti. One of the most famous edits ever and every single book I've ever read about like teaching like the concept of editing uses this example at least once um it's in the alfred hitchcock film the 39 steps Mm. uh, which is one of his um what did they used to call it they used to call it like like the mortgage breaker like it was so successful like failing movie houses would be able to like pay their back rent 
Like, oh, just by booking yeah, this film. Yeah, it was just so. It was such a huge hit, and it was one of the first. Uh, it wasn't the first, but it was the. It was the Hitchcock movie where it was like, ah, this person was wrongfully accused of a crime, and he just fucking nailed it. Like he, the formula was set, and it always it's still the same formula today as it is in Thirty Nine Steps. But there's a scene in which a spy has killed somebody, and then like someone, an old woman, I think I can't remember if it's the cleaning lady or the landlord, they walk into this apartment and they see the dead body. And then we cut to, I think it's a slightly overhead shot of her looking up and screaming. But instead of hearing her scream, we hear a train whistle and we cut to the train. Oh, there you go. You know, like it's the, we're expecting the sound cute sound editing as well, but it also is a great transition from that to where our hero is, mm-hmm. which is a different place. But yeah, we're we're also talking about sort of notable smash cuts. Yeah, there's a, a really wonderful one in uh, James Cameron's The Terminator. Yeah, where uh, we sort of see a, a flash forward to the future, you know, uh-huh. this machine war, and then there's this uh, harsh cut to sort of a white sky and this big mechanical arm reaching down. Yeah, ah, but it's modern day. That's actually just a garbage truck. Yeah, we're um, not that far away. Yeah, yeah you know um, that kind of thing. Yeah, nice that, little bit of business. Yeah, that's that's a good edit. Well, because um, because you're because you're not just transitioning between a place or uh, an image or an angle you're also trying to create a sense of idea or ideology from it one of the books i read that really explained editing to me better than anything else at least as a philosophy Uh was actually a book about comic books called understanding comics by scott mcleod oh we i read it and then i read it again in college it's an it's an indispensable tome there's a few things in there i don't necessarily agree with but for the most part, when it's when it's talking about the use of visual language, the vast majority of it also applies to cinema. And one of the things he talks about is in comic books, you're choosing different images to represent your story. And one of the things that we understand as part of the dialogue of visual storytelling, but we don't necessarily always label, mm-hmm. uh, is the relationship between those images. Yeah. So, like, there is a difference between... Uh, uh, for example, someone is sitting at a table reading a book, and then we look at the page of the book. Yeah. That's a very close edit. We understand exactly what we're going for there. Sometimes uh, edits are a bit more, uh, require a bit more thought. Mm. You know, someone is, like someone buys a plane ticket, and then we see them getting off of a plane. Yeah. You know, we, we're putting information now. We know that they got on a plane, and then they got off the plane, and we're not necessarily thinking about that entire journey, but we understand the relationship we're, we're filling the edit allows us to sort of fill in yeah um, in, in understanding comics he talks about what's in between the panels yeah that's the, the gutter uh, yeah. is what he calls it and that's true in cinema as well because there's always that like line between uh different frames Fra- frames on an actual uh, yeah. film strip so um, every time you cut to something the audience is being asked to fill in information sometimes the information is just as simple as i'm looking at a different angle in the same room mm-hmm. sometimes the information requires the audience to do a little bit of legwork and sometimes the audience is being asked to consider that this is possibly an abstraction. Mm. That this that these two things have nothing to do with one another. And sometimes that is jarring enough to reestablish uh, a new sense of tone. Yeah. A new, uh, a, an entirely new type of uh, humor or character or plot point or location. And it's basically just as we had lulled you into a sense of security and now we are taking you on a different journey and you're going to have to deal with that. Uh, so, yeah, if you want a good sense of how editing works and also a lot of other great just general uh, basic terminology yeah. and ide- ideology about uh, visual storytelling, Understanding Comics is a really indispensable tome. It's a good read, too. It's a very easy read. Yeah. Um, um, uh, 
it, it's difficult to point to films that are edited well uh, when they're talking about like incidental action. Yeah, when they're not calling attention to a smash cut or yeah. uh, or you know, they're not they're not fill, like they're, they're not showy. In, yeah, yeah. Like, filling in information, but there's like, not information being filled in. Yeah, uh, and yet is still communicating a lot about the scene. Yeah. Uh, de- determining the pacing of a scene. Uh, yeah. How how close you are to a person lets us uh, sort of into the mind of that person. What information there's, do you um, need about the environment, or do you need any? That's also something that editors need to consider. There, there's ma- and there's many great examples of this. Uh, I remember being really impressed with the editing in a film called Fallen uh, with Denzel Washington. Yeah, it's a very well. There's movie, a yeah. scene early in that movie where it's just uh, cops sitting around a station. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's Denzel Washington, it's John Goodman, it's James Gandolfini, yeah, uh, and um, uh, it's um, Donald Sutherland. Yeah, as, uh, as four great actors, and they're all just sort of, and they're just sort of like shooting the shit, mm-hmm. kind of shooting. They're, they're they're talking about the case, but they're also mm-hmm. talking about you know beer or mm-hmm. you know betting or what's going. It's on. It's establishing not just plot; it's also establishing yeah, character there's, there's a lot and of relationship. Sa- sound and atmosphere. There's yeah. no music in the scene, and uh, sort of like the way the kind of the camera sort of holds back. It sort of lets us see just the sort of physical dynamic between them. And I think mm-hmm. I remember seeing a lot of scenes in movies mm-hmm. like that where the editing is trying is being sort of dictated by the rhythm of the actors a lot. Yeah. But at the same time in sort of looking at that, we're getting a better sense of what a conversation is yeah. through the editing. And, and that's, that's a, a really difficult thing to sort of pin down. I think it takes yeah. a good instinct from an editor to really kind of it's also that. it also takes a really good instinct from a director and a cinematographer because you need to make sure you have all the shots that you need. You need to make sure you have the shots of this character not just saying that line, but you need to have it saying that line from the perspective of this listener right. and this listener. And you need to make sure that if a line has a certain amount of dramatic weight, you at least have the option of cutting into a close-up mm. or something like that. If you're someone's doing something interesting with their hands, you need to have that as an option to cut to in case that's an important part of the rhythm of the acting. Mm. That kind of scene can take forever to shoot. <laughs> and I've, I've, I've talked to a lot of like uh, independent filmmakers who have talked about like, oh yeah, like they have this scene where there's like eight people talking and like the first thing, like the unit production manager everyone's talking about is, is there any way we can drop the number of characters in the scene down to like two? <laughs> because it's so much easier. You're asking the difference between a half day shooting and two days shooting. Like mm. that's what we're talking about here. It's a real, real trick. Um, oh, I just had a good one. Um, Oh, I, hear, I think one of the best edited movies of this year, maybe the best edited movie of this year, mm-hmm. uh, is The Power of the Dog. Oh, there you go. Really excellently visually crafted motion picture. Um, and one of the ways that I love, one of the things I love about the editing, first of all, it's gorgeously photographed, so you have good material to work with. But um, they understand what is important, what is important now, what will be important later. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of visual iconography that is repeated throughout the film, and you need to make sure that it has the proper emphasis and that we are absorbing it without calling so much attention to it that it's obvious for shadowing. Yeah, and I, I really can't go into a lot of detail about that because there's like there's twists and turns in the power of the dog that I want to ruin for you because it's still relatively new and not everyone's seen it yet. But pay attention to the editing in the power of the dog. It's very organic, but as the movie comes to a head at the end, you realize that it's also been meticulously planned. Yeah. And there's yeah. a lot of things that they desperately but, needed to include in there for that story to make sense. It's, it's kind of the brilliance of that movie. It's such a brilliantly made picture. It's spectacularly well made in like every level. Yeah, that movie's yeah. great. Um, I'm trying to think there's, Oh God. Again, editing is the kind of movie, any good movie probably has great editing. 
<laughs> That's basically it. If you're if you're not aware of the fact that this feels slow or the fact that you're confused about what's happening in a scene right mm-hmm. now, the editing is doing its job. I think one of the best edited films of last year was Malignant. Yeah, I uh, agree. Yeah. Mal- yeah. Malignant has all great, kinds great of, of weird cuts and you know they, they actually keep a lot of the geography really mm-hmm. strangely obfuscated yeah. uh, very deliberately and it's you know very off-putting. It's very dizzying, but that's... It's a horror movie. Yeah. It's supposed to be a little bit dizzy. There's, there's a great bit in Malignant where, uh, and this is a this is an, this is a joke. This is an editing joke, and I think a lot of people don't really can't really process that it's humor. Mm-hmm. But there's a scene in that movie where um, the protagonist talks to her younger sister, and she says something that I think the younger sister kind of already suspected or knew, oh. which is that oh yeah. I'm adopted. And then we cut to like the sister's face as if this is the hugest revelation imaginable (laughs) and the score picks up really loud. And it's like, that's way too much for that plot point. That's a joke. Mm. That's an editing joke. That's hilarious. That is fundamentally hilarious. Um, Anyway, um, hopefully that's some examples here. Uh, but you're right. Too many editors disappear. We don't talk about... We definitely don't... And maybe this is a good thing. Maybe it's a bad thing. We don't deify a lot of uh, the editors. Uh-huh. We don't say to ourselves, man, that editor... I think the last... Besides Thelma Shoemaker, who is, of course, a god. Mm. Um, I think the other filmmaker... The editor who I've heard talked about in very hushed tones my entire life was Walter Murch. Okay. Uh, he directed... He, uh, he edited Apocalypse Now. Yeah. Um, was also a huge... Uh, uh, Hugely influential in the evolution of sound uh, sound editing as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so Walter Murch was kind of a big deal. Check out Walter Murch. Robert Weiss obviously got to start as an editor, but quickly yeah, transitioned I, to filmmaking I, or to directing. Sorry, I, I tend to only know editors sort of in relation to the filmmakers they tend to work with. Like yeah. the Schoonmaker is associated with Martin Scorsese. Yeah, that's she almost the, exclusively the, with Martin the bulk Scorsese. of yeah. her career has been working with Martin Scorsese. Who, who, She's worked on other yeah. films as well. Who, who worked with um, uh, someone I knew a long time and, I, and their name escapes me, and I know you can't say. Positive or negative, but they, they sadly they passed away. But who was it? Who was Quentin Tarantino's oh, editor? Was it um, Sally Menke? Oh, uh, yes, Sally Menke. Yeah, brilliant editor, Sally Menke. Like really great. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can't. Uh, yeah, Sally Menke. Yeah, um, I, I can't speak to her work on Quentin yeah. Tarantino's movies. Um, I can. Brilliant. They worked brilliantly with Tarantino. Knew absolutely how to like. Rain that in when it needed to be reined in, and when to let it yeah, completely I, go nuts. I, I so feel great. that there are some uh, mm. some filmmakers who could get more upstanding editors mm-hmm. and like have the like, sort you of people to clean this up, tidy it down a little bit. A sort of yeah, like a kind of shave, no. shave down a lot of these movies. Yeah. Say, oh, look, I have this whole sequence. Yeah, we're not putting yeah. any of that sequence hey, in this movie. Like, hey, Christopher Nolan, uh, let's scale it the fuck back. So yeah. let's <laughs> yeah, get, scale it a little back a little bit. Get, get a really zealous yeah. editor on P.T. Anderson's stat. Oh, my uh, God, um, yeah, really. Mm. I, licorice pizza does not need to be that long, I'm sorry. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, yeah but I know Eric Hedling, who is uh, yeah. Bergman's editor, um... Mm. So yeah, unfortunately, because I associate them with the director, I'm probably associating their work, and maybe even unfairly yeah. uh, projecting their work onto mm. the director. Uh, and I think well, that's what a lot of people do. Which is why, and again, it's a, it's a tragedy that it happened the way it happened because Sally Mickey passed away. But um, th- it's interesting when a filmmaker switches a collaborative partner so dramatically mm. uh, throughout their career. And I really do feel like, for better or worse, you know, some people love Tarantino's later work more than his early work, or vice versa. Um, 
his films feel different after he got a different editor. Yeah, yeah. And you can watch his films with Sally Mankey, who was like a real guiding storytelling force in his early work, and then see how they've, you know, I feel like The Hateful Eight probably would have been shorter if Sally Mankey were working on it. <laughs> it's a very long film. You know, I feel like it, it could be tightened up. Yeah, Whether or not yeah. it's for better or worse is up for debate. Um, but, um, or, or even something like, and this is not editing, but like, Look at Steven Spielberg's films before he started working with Janusz Kaminski and Schindler's List. Well, they're uh, they're they're he almost, yeah, that's like, it's a different thing, but it's still a, a consistent storytelling collaborator. Janusz Kaminski did almost, I think maybe all, but almost all of Spielberg's movies since Schindler's List. Yeah. But before then, Spielberg worked with a variety of different directors of photography, and his films had different aesthetics, mm-hmm. for better or worse. But you can look at that, and you can maybe... When you look at over that overall career, and you realize just how significant this collaborative uh, a relationship was to the telling of their stories, you start to realize that some of the credit that we give directors mm-hmm. belongs to the editors because they're very different yeah. when they're working with different people. Yep. Um, so, anyway, I hope that helps a little bit. Um, we kind of got in the weeds there. It's a huge, huge topic. Yeah. It's a gigantic topic, and you're right; it isn't discussed enough. Um, it's hard to discuss in podcast format. It really does benefit from having like tangible examples, like we can cut to or show yeah, and demonstrate. For, I would love to you see the, the Visions of Light documentary film about editing. Oh, be so great. Mm. Visions of Light is a legendary documentary about cinematography. It's a little out of date now because it's made like in the '90s and technology has changed a lot. But um, if, it was. If you want to look at sort yeah. of the history of cinematography up to the '90s, yeah, oh, it's, it's, it's indispensable. It's, yeah, Perfectly cromulent I think it might still be out of print, but if you can find it, it, please, oh, it was out of print for forever. Because the clip, because the clips, they have millions of clips in that Let me look up uh, Visions of Light because I um, think I look it up on yeah. justwatch.com, yeah, which is a really indispensable website if you're not yeah, using um, it. There's, it just tells you where it's, things are streaming. Not every streaming yeah, service yeah. is on there, but most are. Most of the big ones, anyway. Uh, Visions of Light is not be- not listed yeah, on Just I'm not, Watch. There's I'm not, not surprised. even an entry for it. Yeah, I think it's going to be impossible to get redistributed mm. nowadays just because of the licensing right. rights to all the different clips they use. But if you can track it down, it's definitely worth doing so. So we encourage you to do so wherever however you can. Um, anyway, that's it for We've Got Mail this week. Thank you, everybody, for writing in. Thank you, everybody, for uh, sharing your thoughts and uh, uh, asking us questions and uh, sharing us little parts of your lives. And that's really important to us. And you're important to us. And we're very, very grateful to you. So thank you. We hope you're having a happy new year. We hope you had a wonderful holiday, whoever uh, whoever that pans out for you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh want to give a special thank you to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, without whom this show and all of our other shows would not exist. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um of course, you can email us every week at letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that's letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our P.O. box? Do you prefer that way? The Critically Acclaimed Network P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Uh, if you want more exclusive programming, you can head on over to patreon.com slash criticallyacclaimednetwork uh, for shows dedicated to Star Trek, the Academy Awards, Batman. We have some commentary tracks we've dropped recently. Uh, we do a hangout once a month. We'll schedule that pretty soon. Um, and and other things as well. So mm-hmm. very special thank you once again to all of our patrons. Uh, we're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, if you want soaps, we just dropped some new soap designs for January. We're going to do some more throughout the month. Uh, sort of prepare for stuff like Valentine's Day and other gift-giving occasions. Uh, our Etsy store is called Salt Cat Soap, all one word. We are on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Salt Cat Soap, all one word. 
Uh, you can find the links to the store there. Thank you, everybody, who's already purchased some soap. Uh, the reviews have been really, really, really astounding and encouraging. And thank you. We're glad you enjoyed the soaps that we design ourselves. Um, and, of course, Whitney has some radio dramas and another uh, podcast I, that I he does. Do, and, I do, yeah. I do, I do, I um, uh, B. Peterson and I, uh, we used to uh, do it on a weekly basis, but it was uh, mm. a little bit too much for, for both of us, really. Uh, so it's now just a monthly show uh, where B. Peterson and I uh, talk about what is on Ovid, which is one of the best of all the streaming services. Uh, Ovid has deep cut art house stuff, a lot of international cinema, dance documentaries, uh, you know, a lot of biographies, a lot of all those films you heard about playing in one museum in Los Angeles for one <laughs> week and you wanted to see, but you couldn't. Yeah. Those are all on Ovid now. Uh, and yeah, we get together uh, once a month and we talk about what we saw on Ovid that month. Uh, and yes, I do have some radio dramas. Uh, it, the Christmas season has passed, but it's never too late to get my Christmas show. <laughs> I wrote a Christmas show called She Began to Dance Around, which is about a woman who is stalking Frosty the Snowman. Hey, Frosty the Snowman is a winter deity. He hmm. can still persist after Christmas. Yeah, and uh, for her own nefarious purposes, it will turn out. Hmm. Uh, and I have three others besides. Uh, one is about a video cassette that can predict the future. It's called Determined. Determined has two meanings, get it? Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, I have one called Love at Nana, which is a conversation in a sort of counterculture uh, store in 1991, and a customer and, a, and one of the clerks have an, an interesting conversation and uh, share a connection. Mm. And uh, there's also The Tenth Muse, which is about a time-traveling lesbian bar, and it has a talking crab in it, and <laughs> the poetry of Sappho and a punk rock number, and it was really, really fun to make. I choose to believe the talking crab is a reference to the magic crab from the Sarah Michelle Gellar comedy Simply Irresistible. You know it's not? Oh. Uh, I'm uh, I'm the author, so I can put the kibosh on that crap right away. <laughs> yeah, but 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 really, do you understand your art as well as as you possibly could? You know what? It's isn't it's it out isn't of, it up, out of it, my hands yeah, now? Yeah. So you can the take audience, your, the critics are allowed to have take their whatever own the whatever the fuck interpretation you yeah. want. It's all yours now. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Simply irresistible. Why not? It's a good movie. Damn it. Anyway, that's it for we've got mail. Thank you everybody once again for listening. We hope you have a wonderful week. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. The magic crab made the food magic. <laughs>